You know, I think dynamic sectors need dynamism, and that comes from a whole bunch of smart people trying a whole bunch of smart things. Some's going to work, a lot's not going to work. But unless we do that and try things, there's not going to be advancement. Um, and without advancement, we're not going to get ourselves out of this pretty poor state, I reckon, of sheep and beef farm returns. You know, Beef and Lamb said the the average return on capital for a sheep and beef farm is two percent. So no one no one would invest in a business with that proposition. I certainly wouldn't. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems. Mr. Jeff Ross actually strayed in off the hill after a cattle muster. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, John Oak. I'll just ask you, Jeff, to introduce yourself to the listeners to get a sense of uh, being related. Who was who Jeff Ross? So, look, myself and my family, um, we purchased Lake Aware Station actually in 2017 and took on the farming around 2018. Um, look, I grew up on a farm, albeit a North Island uh, farm, a deer and dairy farm. Um, but after close to three decades um, in more city-based roles, uh, we've, we've finally re- returned to farming. And tell us a bit about Lake Hawea Station. Lake Hawea is, is one of the southern lakes. Um, we're around 20 minutes north of Wanaka. And so Lake Hawea, I guess, is the lesser known of, of Wakatipu, Wanaka, um, and, and then uh, Hawea is the third, uh, the northernmost of those three lakes. Um, Lake Hawea Station is on the um, the northeastern corner. So if you can imagine Lake Hawea itself is like a big cigar, we've kind of got the northeastern corner there. Um, some flats um, on Hawea Flat itself, and then uh, some terraces along the lakefront. And then quite quickly, we, we rise to some pretty steep country up off those terraces, and then up and over the back to more gentle alpine tussock country, which rolls back towards the Lindus. And what is your altitude variation? Yeah, right down on the lakefront, I think it's 380 um, metres. And our highest point is just under 1,600 metres. And there's a, there's a saddle, which we've just come over, to connect us with the backcountry. And that's at 1,200 metres. So there are weeks of the year where that's, that's impassable. Real character building stuff, I bet. Tell us a bit about the livestock that you run at LHS. Merino sheep and Angus cattle. Um, we're, we're getting close to 5,000 Merino ewes and we're at about 240 Angus cows. And currently we do take everything through to finishing. You know, Merino is a slow growing uh, sheep and we have, you know, the, obviously the pinch point here is winter. So we, we are wintering those animals, although what we've just started doing is a, using as a terminal ram for some of the ewe flock so we can get some faster growing lambs off before winter um, in, in the hope that that will allow us to lift some of our capital stock. Sure, yeah. And, and so winter, cold, do you get much snow on the ground, Jeff, or is it really just the low temperatures? This, this uh, until this year, I would have said no, not much snow, but we, we've had quite a bit of snow this year and cold. It's been a hard winter, to be fair, um, and, and that came on the back of a dry autumn. So, um, 
look, we're, we're looking forward to spring, I think, like most other farmers at the moment. Um, yeah, snow typically doesn't last long, if at all, down on the flat country where we, we, we bring everything home for winter. So um, other than a group of Angus cows, which we've just brought home now, they, they winter right over the back um, towards the Lindis Pass Road on some lower stuff. And so when you bought the place, Jeff, talk us through, like, was it that you sort of bought the farm and its livestock and continued its management, um, you know, more or less how it was being managed? Or did you really come in and, and start from scratch with your own stock? And Yeah, well, the whole thing grew on us, to be fair. We, when we bought it, we actually bought it more for a place of recreation and lifestyle, um, but once, um, and so the, the farm was actually leased back to the previous owner. Um, but once we were here and started seeing the surrounds and started learning a lot about farming practices um, and, and, you know, farm and kind of re, I guess, connecting with farming overall in New Zealand, we decided we actually wanted to, to, be, to be farmers ourselves. So um, <laughs> we, we then took on the stock, you know, a year later and, um, and our own team and started farming it ourselves. Um, and even that grew on us, really. You know, we thought, brilliant, we'll just um, hire our team, leave them to it. Um, but as we learned more about the sector, the challenges, and importantly, the opportunities, we we found ourselves getting kind of really involved. Not so much on the on the tools, you know, I, I'm, I'm not running a team of dogs as yet, but, but certainly on what um, markets are looking for. And grower returns and particularly how we can improve grower returns because I think and as a general rule especially in, in sheep and beef farming the returns have eroded quite significant significantly over the last 30 years and I think now more than ever there's an opportunity to change that because the macro trend worldwide is that consumers want to connect with the source of their food and fiber and that being so um, therefore there is an opportunity for that source um, if we provide, you know, because I guess the, the world I came from is more marketing based and the kind of the, the 101 of that world is find out what your customer wants, find out how to be unique and find out how to charge a premium for it. And that's that's kind of what we're, what we're now aiming to do in farming. And, you know, to some extent um, that's happening, particularly in, in wool. The world of, you know, getting to know your farm and getting to know the management and, you know, learning all the the practical stuff as well as trying to look at this big picture stuff. I mean, how do you juggle that? Is there, is there a balance? Is there a compromise, Jeff, between sort of creativity and, you know, head down in the rut of doing? Look, I don't know if I balance that very well at all. Um, and I don't know if I have for the last 30 years, actually. Um, you know, I remember from one of my first advertising jobs, I went to my boss one day and I said, you know, look, how do I, how do I get a promotion? How do I get into management? You know, I'm sick of running around with job bags on the ad agency. And uh, my boss said something like, learn how to do both. And when you've learned how to do both, then you'll be ready for management. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, unfortunately, it's kind of true in farming. Um, probably tougher in farming because the skill set you got to have is just so broad, you know, and, and then you've got the unpredictability that exists in farming you've got weather events you've got just when you think you've got an afternoon to do that bloody repair job on a fence someone drives through a water pipe or you know something happens so um yeah it's such a broad skill set required or you get you know some stock who aren't looking aren't looking as good as they should and you got to do something with that so 
so yeah it's it's hard to do both we're i guess to be fair we're really lucky we've got a great team here um and as mentioned you know jack our farm manager really is is the manager on the ground every day which does afford me some time to look at um trialing new things talking to people like yourself on on our pasture and soil and investigating things that we might want to do it's almost like um you know farmers have always been known as a very uh you know you, you said broad skill set you know farmers are the the the, the mechanics the engineers they're the you know the all the maintenance that and then but one thing that's foreign for farming traditionally is is marketing you know for the most part it's about commodities and 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 providing products in industries where there's not a lot of say of what goes on with the product you know it's all into the same pot so to speak so in a way you know you talk about learning the ropes of the you know the doing on the farm you know the marketing side of it's natural for you for farmers i guarantee it would be you know for the most part very foreign to think about the idea of marketing into a perhaps a niche market or you know even tailoring products to suit demands and i want to come back to the team so when you um created your manager just broke out so jack Mansfield is the manager at Lake mm-hmm. Hawea Station. And tell us about the, how many staff have you got on, on at Lake Hawea Station, Jeff? We've got three on the farm. We've got Jack's our manager, Lockie's our shepherd, your senior shepherd. And we've got a really good local general, one of these rare guys who can fix anything, build anything, drive anything, and is handy on the farm as well, uh, Tony. Uh, so that's the, the three on the farm side of things. And we've got a young woman called Grace who helps us with accommodation and some of our tourism uh, activities here. Mm. So tell us a bit about your tourism activities, like as far as diversity of, you know, enterprises, what else goes on outside of sheep and cattle? Sheep, cattle, um, accommodation and weddings. Because we're on the lakefront, we've got a, a flat little terrace there, which is a nice spot to to have a wedding so we just rent that out as a as a dry site people then bring in their own food truck or tents or whatever they need um from we do that a little bit and yeah um post-covid's been quite interesting you know um if you had asked me a year and a half ago is tourism something we should get into i probably would have said uh not sure don't think so but it's really it has really kicked up in this last little bit and um especially we we really um I, I guess, you know, appreciate uh, some of the foreign tourists. So we've just started to get a few Americans, certainly Australians back. And they're fantastic because uh, they want to, they want a tour of the farm. They want to get a chef out. They want to go e-biking. You, some of them might want to go for a hunt. So we're doing a lot of that stuff, which actually makes, you know, for a, a rewarding package. And as far as what they get to experience, like, you know, for anyone that's seen the recent country calendar, you'll be all aware. But for those that perhaps haven't, um, what makes Lake Hawea Station different? What are you doing different on the farm, Jeff, that has you stand out? Look, I'm not sure there's any one thing. You know, look, we are getting into multi-species regenerative farming, um, as we call it. Uh, but obviously, so are a lot of other farmers. And, and there's many other farmers who are more advanced than us. Um, we, we are um, certainly protecting a lot of biodiversity. 
Um, we've got five uh, endangered or critically endangered species on the station. So we've got programs around each of those um, and a lot of native tree planting and, and waterfront protection. But again, so are other farmers. Uh, and we're doing a lot on animal welfare. And I think, you know, what um, kind of got the, got the chat going we, after country calendar, country calendar was actually that part, you know, what we do in the wool shed. Um, and that came back from, that came from really one of those marketing insights. So when we spoke to wool buyers in particularly in Europe and the UK, to our surprise, they said, uh, isn't sharing a brutal act or some of their customers actually think a sheep is, needs to be killed for it to be shorn. And, and we thought, look, that's a really interesting perception we didn't know exists. So in marketing, when there's a, a perception that's a headwind, you don't go and say, you guys are all, you don't know what you're talking about. That's a bunch of bullshit. You go about trying with actions, trying to demonstrate that things are different to that. So that's why we painted the boards white, which again, other sheds do. And particularly in Australia, most boards in Australia are white. Look, we did have a couple of drops on our shed that are quite um, long. So we put mattresses down there. And we did that because actually because we think we should, you know, no, no farmer wants to see a sheep come out of the shed with a skinned knee or bloody bruised leg or something. Because if that happens, that means that sheep's got to put energy into recovery and, and stress instead of growing wool and raising that lamb. Um, so the energy needs to go to the right places, not to, to healing wounds that need not have occurred in the first place. Um, and, and like cost of that, Jeff, like you're talking nothing, right? No, well, yeah, again, some of the, the jip was uh, easy for you. You can afford that. Well, the mattresses were $5 from Wastebusters. I think the paint for the boards uh, was about maybe $150. So, and, you know, we, there's a great local guy. He, he helped us paint it. And then a few other skeptics said, oh, yeah, but paint will make it slippery. Well, I did remind them that there's such a thing called non-skid paint. It's been around for about 30 years. So, um Look, um, so I think probably the most controversial one was music, you know, um, which again was probably taken out of context. We we have everyone's playlist in the shed, um, which goes from country, which which is my personal favourite, Jono, to uh, to rock, to and yes, at times a bit of classical, and everyone gets a crack on the playlist. Um, and look, I think in dairy farming in the shed, you know, there's been a lot of talk over decades about music type and um cows letting letting milk down you know relaxing so yeah sure we we tried some more gentle music from time to time although when everyone gets a bit tired in the afternoon um look something a little more upbeat's good to get the the gang going again for sure for sure yeah diversity in all aspects plants and music all aspects mate i tell you before diversity was a buzzword nature nature if we learn one thing, or I'm a slow learner often, Jono, but if I've learned one thing, it's that nature's spent millions and millions of years, um, and it's a pretty good kind of, I guess, system of getting things right. And nature typically uses diversity for robust ecosystems, productive ecosystems, ecosystems that um, can withstand drought, um, withstand pests. So... Yeah, I guess it was kind of that observation of nature, which which happened, you know, probably when I was a kid on my dad's farm, that um, that got us interested in regenerative multi-species pastures in the first first place. And talk us through that. So you've done a bit of 
planting of multi-species pasture, Jeff, what's that look like um, on your property? Has it been in the hill or has it been on the flat? Talk us through your journey of um, pasture development. Yep. Um, well, look, it started actually by by hearing about it, being interested about it. And then we watched um, Lindburn Station on Country Calendar several years ago, and that really got our attention. So, look, we started on the flat in a relatively small way, trialled multi-species annual pasture and then some multi-species permanent pastures. Look, we, we just had a real small go in year one. We really liked what we saw. We liked the animals reaction to it you, you could just see their excitement when they walked into it and I think the more the most obvious thing was through summer you know you walk into a traditional paddock after you've had a few hot weeks and we get that dry nor'wester here and you try and put a spade into a paddock that's been in ryegrass you know for 10 years and you you can barely get your spade into the ground and you walk next door and that regen paddock um with just way more cover and way more soil life, even after the same weather, that spade goes straight in and you dig it up and there's a heap of life going and then you put your hand on the soil and it's moist and it's cool. You know, so soil health was the obvious. So that was year one. We got quite excited by that. Year two, I probably got too excited. Um, said, righto team, let's get these annuals in real early. They're going to be going off by the time we break feed them next year and I and I, I went too too early and um, by the time we break feed them next the following year they were starting to to dry out a bit you know so we'd lost some of the good feed value so the year um, I think there was observation one in, in our winter crops our annuals and we probably didn't put enough brassicas in so we, we we're kind of gonna as we go you know dial up some of the kales and turnips and like, I guess every farm's different you know every paddock's different so you know you don't perfect your system ever probably but you certainly don't perfect it in three years we like lucerne you got to get kind of the quantities right so it doesn't get swamped plantain and chicory do really well here as well so they're all part of the, the permanent mix like compared to when you started what it, what did it look like when you started was it just um like what were you doing for winter feed was it were you doing winter crops yeah. or yeah. When we first got here, the, the typical, oh, there's all sorts of winter feeds in this area. You know, we, we, we and this property had long run turnips and grass, a mix of turnips and grass. Uh, and we did that in year one and that had performed well. Um, um, we, actually, we actually did a fodder beet as well for some cattle. There's, you know, plenty of bulk in fodder beet, as we know, but this, so the, the cattle did well on it, um, but the soil did not. It's bloody compacted. So there's that balance, isn't there? You know, livestock health and soil health are the two things we're trying to build. Um, and there is a balance, you know, if you wanted to go all out on livestock health, um, you know, you'd, you'd probably ramp up the brassicas even further, but then you haven't got some of that root structure and you get greater levels of camp compaction. Um, so you've got to get a bit of mix in there, the right balance there. So yeah, the winter crops now, I think, are really, really exciting. Um, in fact, we did a we did what we call a, a regen silage mix um, last year, and we did um, oh, probably eight or nine species. We had peas in there, a few sunflowers, oats. We chopped that up, put it in the stack, and then we opened our stacks up, you know, more of a traditional stack and the regen stack, and um, 
the region stack actually we sent it away for DM and ME and it actually scored a little higher than than I guess a traditional mix. So that was pretty cool. We, we're going to do that again this year. What's it like just having a play and working it out, Jeff? Yeah, look, it's really rewarding. You don't get it right every time, you know. Mm. And there's, there's always some challenges. You know, we'd love to, like a lot of people, get away from any kind of sprays. But that that first, first go of getting rid of a ryegrass that's been there for 10 years and getting diversity is actually quite hard without a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a you know, top. Yeah. And look, have you tried planting without spraying, Jeff? Have you done any sort of trial work on what that looks like? We have with mixed success. Um, I think a lot is on timing, you know, with um, for that, you in an ideal world, which you, you can't um, orchestrate always, as you, as you get those seeds in the ground the day before a good rainfall, you know, and then as soon as those seeds appear, you have another good rainfall and they get up and bolting and, and get a get a bloody good head start before that ryegrass wakes up again. Um, that's the ideal scenario, but you can't always orchestrate that um and we've also just tried decking a paddock really hard graze and then stitching with a direct drill seed and straight after that with pretty pretty limited success thus far but there's probably a few things we could do i think um probably leave it a lot longer you know not let the stock in there until it, you do get the new seeds emerge they're probably a little slower and they've got to fight a bit harder so they need a bit more time before you put the stock in there under that scenario. Cool. And what about on the topic of animal health? Are you doing anything with um, minerals or anything like that, Jeff? Yeah, we do. We use the Agri-Sea, you know, seaweed tonic, um, which we use pre, um, pre-lamb and pre, pre-mating. We use a lot of salt blocks here. Both sheep and cattle love the salt blocks. And we use those also for putting around the place to get stock into areas that they're possibly a bit too lazy to graze, you know, up on the hill country. Um, so we're often dropping salt around the hills. When you talk about, you know, whatever term you fancy, whether it's regenerative agriculture or, you know, multi species, all the stuff can be quite different. How has the team responded? Is this all, has, has it been new for them? Has it been, you know, what's that been like introducing new ideas with a team of guys that may only have been used to traditional farming? Look, we're pretty lucky, pretty fortunate here. Um, you know, I think though we started, we didn't kind of put the whole farm or or, or go all um, diversity or regen in year one. You know, we we had a buck each way um, because we didn't know how it performed. You know, and you you didn't want to kind of put it all on black and um, and then the, the stock, you know, or the crop doesn't perform, and then you come June, you're in a in a real tight spot. Um, so we tried it. You know, on a few paddocks, it seemed to work. Changed the mix, tried it on a few more paddocks. So we've scaled it up now to a point where all our winter crops are, are diverse, you know, pasture mixes. And so it's it's been, for all of us really, me included, it's been, a, you know, a process where you, your confidence grows over time. When you talked about market demands and or market, you know, consumer interests and demands, was that one of the drivers for the the diversity thing as well, Jeff, or was that just personal for you? It wasn't initially, Jono. It was the drivers were it kind of intuitively makes sense, you know, because of because of that observation of, of nature. You know, I I can't 
think of any monocrop that naturally exists in nature anywhere in the world. So that's where it started. Um, but now the term regenerative farming um, is huge worldwide, and it doesn't just exist in farming. Pretty much every sector has regenerative principles emerging, whether it be tourism or travel, uh, fashion particularly. Um, all is now talking about regenerative. So, uh, you know, to some of those farmers who are possibly still skeptical of regenerative, you know, my comment was, well, I have two kind of comments. Um, one is that, well, that's your view. Your customers, however, are wanting regen growing food and fiber. So it's something to consider, especially if you can get premiums for it, uh, which is happening. And secondly, are you a fan of ryegrass? The answer is yes. Are you a fan of clover? The answer is yes. Are you a fan of lucerne? The answer is often yes. Are you a fan of brassicas? The answer is yes. You know, then you go through them all, whether it be, you know, rye corn or chicory or plantain, you know, vetch I've mentioned. And so then the, then, then the question is, well, why can't they exist together in, in one paddock? Um, and, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb is more life above the ground uh, typically means more life below the ground. So that's our view to date, at least, yeah. Have you benchmarked what, what you're seeing as far as biology and the soil and soil health? Have you been noticing any trends? Yes, is the short version. So of the key measures, you know, the, the obvious one I mentioned before is water retention. That, that's the first thing we've noticed. Soil health takes a bit longer, but that's certainly what we've noticed. And yeah, we have benchmarked. We've also done soil carbon benchmark tests and we've, we are lifting carbon in the soil and so we, you would know, we do annual soil tests for that and because of that certainly believe we use much less fertilizer um, we do need a bit of lime here um, and a little bit of magnesium and boron it seems but you know other than that we're, we're pretty light on fertilizer um, the harder one to measure but we intuitively think it's it's working well for us is you know, livestock gains, whether it be um, weight gains or, or wool growth. Uh, we have tried, um, you know, different mobs on different um, pastures, measured lives, measured weight gain and measured wool weights. Look, there are often there's so many other factors. It, there's, you're certainly no worse off and it looks like we're, we're better off from a livestock point of view. And then there's also the emerging kind of theory that, that animals like humans self-medicate, you know, so... Um, you know, John, if you wake up in the morning and, you, and your body tells you you feel like an orange juice, there's probably a reason why your body's telling you you feel like an orange juice. And, you know, the, in animals, it's believed to be the same. You know, an animal will choose a plant um, based on its, on its body's needs. And if there's more diversity, they will choose a plant that is, is right for them and their, their body's needs. So animal health is, is better as well. But of those measures, measures water, soil health, you know, uh, weight gains or productivity and animal health, the first two are obvious and relatively Im immediate. The second two, we feel pretty confident about, but I, I can't give you any kind of data on that as yet. On the carbon thing, Jeff, do you think we'll ever get to a point where there's a market for soil carbon as a, another income stream for farmers in New Zealand? Most definitely. If the first, there's some farms in Australia that have sold soil carbon credits. Farms sold some soil carbon credits, I believe, to Microsoft, about $500,000 worth. So, yeah, 
it, yeah, it's it's it will come at some point. I mean, the only caution though is uh, you can gain carbon in soil, but you can also lose it as well. So you just have to factor that into your thinking as well. So it's like a case of if you get a carbon payment for gaining carbon, and then you are seen to lose carbon, there may be a case where you've got to pay money. Yeah, yeah, it'd be same if you're you're, you're getting credits off a forest and then. For some reason, um, you cut that forest down. You'd you'd have to pay back those credits. Yep. Tell me about the wider ecosystem services and biodiversity at Lake Hawaii Station beyond pastures. Yeah, so the, I think the big themes, you know, like in New Zealand agriculture, the big conversation, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, was water. I think the current big conversation in New Zealand agriculture is carbon. I think the coming conversation is around biodiversity, and you've seen brands like um, LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, one of the biggest luxury brand groups in the world, now investing in biodiversity projects around the world um, because they believe it's important to their customers. Uh, one of our world customers, Sheep Inc., which stands for Sheep Included, because when you buy a sweater, you adopt a sheep from the station that all had come from. Uh, they're investing in a biodiversity project on, on our station. So I think it's pretty cool a company on the other side of the world is actually investing in New Zealand's uh you know natural ecosystem so yeah look we uh we we've got um some pretty interesting critters the most interesting is, is the western grand skink it's a lizard almost 30 centimeters long pretty big it's the only remaining population of that type of skink left in the wild in the world um, when we first got here, didn't know, no one knew if it existed or not. They'd captured a bunch and put them in captivity. But So there was the captive um, population, but no one knew if they, they were still alive in the wild. So we did a survey. Um, most of them are actually on dock land, but dock didn't have budget or interest in, in that species for whatever reason. We funded this, the survey ourselves. We found 23 adults and one juvenile. Um, it was two years ago. We went back earlier this year and we found over 40 adults. And we've done a huge amount of trapping there. That skink's in, you know, enemy, I guess, or predator is cats and stoats. Um, so we've been trapping really hard on our land and on dock land. And it's amazing that that little population is, at Touchwood, seems to be growing. Wow. That must be an incredible feeling as a landowner and steward. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's very rewarding for all of us. Um, and, you know, I think there's a conversation going on who are the best stewards of our landscape um, for, for New Zealand's biodiversity and our native ecosystems. And, you know, I would say, you know, whilst, you know, I have a lot of respect for DOC in various parts of the country, that they, they can't cover the country like us farmers can. I believe there's 60,000 farms in New Zealand. You know, so there's no way Doc have 60,000 people on the ground every day. Um, so what an amazing resource Doc could have um, if there was that private-public collaboration which should exist between the two to look after our biodiversity. As I said at the start, I think pretty much most, if not all, all farmers are great custodians of their biodiversity. And I think there's got to be acknowledgement of that and how we better work with Doc because in our example right here it's been a solo exercise really um other than now we get support from sheep inc and uh, new zealand merino for this this population 
yeah and do you think it's possible we could change the narrative around because I, i'm not sure if you've ever felt it and I'll, I'll ask you the question have you ever felt like as a farmer you're under the watchful eye of the public as like some kind of polluter or you know someone who was actually like have you ever felt like you've had to prove yourself or as far as you know not doing damage to the environment yes is the short answer and so the so then what why is that um and I think a lot of farmers feel this at the moment. And, you know, we, we read articles about someone who's, we perceive as, you know, not being to our region, doesn't understand farming, potentially being quite critical of some of our practices. And I think we get quite frustrated. And there's two reasons for that. One is either because um, they're wrong um, or, or um, either because they don't know uh, about what we're doing. So, Again, in marketing, if you know if, if there's an information gap, what do you do? You don't just swear at them and call them a, a bunch of city idiots. Um, you, you go about changing that perception, you know. And so, I guess that's what we've we've tried to do with some of these practices. And you know, my wife uh, runs a, an Instagram site, and we we tell some of our stories. So, you know, what I think we in in farming, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. We need to be better at is, is telling some of our stories. Um, rather than being angry at them, I think we need to, uh, it's some of those city dwellers, I think we simply need to inform them of what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy, Jeff. Actually, just this morning, I saw on your Instagram page, like our air station living, a uh, family jumping in their car as a, it looked like one small child and a husband and a wife saying you know yay we're off to Lake Hawaii Station to go and see some lambs and you know they're doing your advertising for you they are yeah um and we're we're both fortunate and perhaps not fortunate at times to be in an area that gets a lot of tourists um we've got a road that runs along the side of the lake so people can see what's going on at lambing um you know and there's obviously challenges with that sometimes but We've put signs on some of our paddocks, John, when we've got regenerative species um, running in there. And, you know, we're telling people why on those signs. Um, and um, so we're telling our story, I guess, you know, via Instagram, but via a few signs on the road. And um, if you look at other businesses and farms of businesses, if you, if you go through pretty much any zone in any town or city in New Zealand you'll see the sign of the business a description of what it does and often a few kind of key sell points of what they're doing and why and so I just wonder in farming why we haven't done that so much you know it's I think it's important we tell our stories and we've all got roadsides um, and Instagram accounts um, that allow us to do that for pretty much no money and uniqueness right like my experience as a farmer was always that, you know, there's a way of doing things and you stick to that. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of variation. And in business, that's sort of the goal, right, is, is to get some unique advantage or, you know, to offer something that no one else is. And, um, 100%, yeah, sorry. What you're saying is, is through telling a story, you're not only informing people so that maybe there's less of a, divide you know especially the city and rural you know or urban and rural divide 
there's probably not many urban folk that don't want to go out and experience that life on the farm beyond a children's book that they might read to their children at night. And you're yeah. you're giving that opportunity and telling them the story so that that's not only an experience of, or the American one would be like a red barn and a tractor and a pig and a sheep and and da da da, but it's actually the story of actually what's going on here. You know, the big trend is consumers want to connect with the source of their food and fiber. We talked about, but there's there's growing interest in farms. I spoke to a Lincoln lecturer the other day. He said, you know. Agriculture is is more is is cooler now than it's ever been. There's more and more interest in agriculture, so people also want to learn about what we're doing. And I think diversity, we, we've come back to it again, is a great thing in business. You know, if you look at Palo Alto, a small town in America that is responsible for more wealth creation than any other place in the world, pretty much. Um, if you went there and asked a hundred different people what the future of the internet is, you'd get a hundred different answers. And they're all completely comfortable with that. So I don't know why in New Zealand, you know, in agriculture, we feel there is a need to conform. You know, I think dynamic sectors need dynamism. And that comes from a whole bunch of smart people trying a whole bunch of smart things. Some's going to work, a lot's not going to work. But unless we do that, and try things there's not going to be advancement um and without advancement we're not going to get ourselves out of this pretty poor state i reckon of sheep and beef farm returns you know beef and lamb said the the average return on capital for a sheep and beef farm is two two percent so no one no one would invest in a business with that proposition i certainly wouldn't but we have you know and we have because we we believe in increasing interest in farm the increasing need in natural fiber and regeneratively grown foods and climate positive farming so i think there's a really exciting opportunity for new zealand farming because typically as extensive farmers we do those things already pretty well so if we can tell our stories and add unique aspects to each of our farms and what we grow therefore we should have a pretty excited ideally customer base out there who, who who more than ever actually want to know about what we're doing so that's why i think it's an exciting time but we can't just expect it all to come to us you know we've got to work at it yeah and farmers are really good at that tell me jeff in the world of climate impact and you know climate change is a hot topic at the moment everyone's talking about carbon but there's also this big thing about emissions and the possibility of an emissions tax what do you think about that Climate change is the biggest challenge of our of our generation. Um, the world is very slow to act on it. Um, we're going to get more and more challenging climate events. So I guess point one is the world needs to act. I'm, I'm actually okay with attacks on emissions as long as there is a reward for sequestration. So you've got to have like in any accounting form, you've got to have balanced if you put something on one side of the ledger, you've typically got to do the equal thing to the other side. So if we're to be levied on a stock unit, we also have to be equally rewarded for a tree. For the people that are thinking all farmers are massive emitters of, let's say, you know, the hot one is carbon dioxide. Is, is it possible to be on the other side of the ledger with that one? Yeah, it is. And so we had our carbon position audit carbon position audited a couple of years ago so we we emit 
our emissions are 2,500 tons of greenhouse gas a year. 79% of that is methane from the stock. The bulk of the rest is carbon dioxide um, uh, and some nitrous oxide from the stock. Um, surprising, you know, I see the, the contractors here cutting silage day and night for what feels like a week. Um, I would have thought that would be a much higher number. It's actually carbon dioxide in, in the relative scheme of things is relatively small. So we emit two and a half thousand tons a year. It sounds like a big number. But then we looked at our sequestration. So from trees we've planted, from some regenerating bush and gullies out the back, some steep slopes that are growing, trees, some shelterbounts. Um, we're sequestering five and a half thousand tons a year. So we sequester a little over two times more than we emit, making us two times climate positive. So this farm um, every day is, is therefore helping heal the planet as opposed to harm the planet. And I think with more farms now starting to understand their carbon position, particularly in sheep and beef, you will get a lot of farms that are actually climate positive. It's going to be a bit tougher in dairy now um, because they just don't have the scale of land that sheep and beef have or nor the, say, you know, rough little gullies with, with some bush emerging. Um, I think, therefore, farming can be a healer of, in, climate, in the battle against climate change. Now, for those farms that aren't climate positive, and, and we kind of got a lucky bounce on that just be, you know, because of our landscape and because we are planting, there is some exciting science coming. Um, the obvious one is uh, asparagopsis seaweed. So a supplement, uh, the Australians are far more advanced on this than we are. And they've shown that um, it can reduce methane in stock uh, by up to 90%. And the cool thing is, it's a, is that acts in the stomach and rather than the energy being lost from that cow or that cattle beast in methane, that energy actually goes um, into the animal as, as for, you know, to actually increase live weight. So it's kind of a win-win, it seems. And tell me, Jeff, like I know that the amount of methane produced from an animal really does reflect its diet. It's a correlation. The figures used for emissions in methane are they generic or are they based on actual testing of your animals on the diet you're feeding them? They're generic, Jono. Yeah, so we're using a, a stock standard Merino U number um, and applying it to all our U's. If you see some of the, uh, so that, if that was done from a lowland farm, that, uh, you know, a lowland U is going to obviously um, behave and perform incredibly differently to a high country U. So, that is why there needs to be, like in any kind of emerging field, this is not unusual to any, you know, is not non-typical to an emerging field. There's going to be science on this. A, a chap at Lincoln, I'm sure you'll know, um, Pablo, he's doing a lot of research on this, and it's it pretty um, clear that multi-species pastures also mean less methane. My kind of crass analogy is, Jono, if you only ate lettuce all week, and I had kind of open access to the salad bar, I know who'd be emitting uh, the most methane. I'm, I'm sorry to say it would be you, Jono. So um, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> that's going to be true in animals, right? I, I would have thought. And, and Pablo has evidence that it is. So unfortunately, however, we're, we're using the number from a you, you know, probably on the Canterbury Plains who, who's chewing ryegrass all day. 
you, you talked about, we'll keep coming back to diversity because it's so important. And, um, you know, when we're talking about possible taxes and we're talking about what's your number and using calculations, it's important that we include diversity in that. It is. And that's, that, that will, will come. I will, I will, I would hope, you know, mm. because um, for you to get taxed would be a bit absurd, wouldn't it? Yeah, if it would be uh, in our case, you know, when we're, we're, we, we um, sequester over two times more carbon than we emit, um, it would be, it would be absurd. You should be getting a check. Well, exactly. And, and we are, you know, and this is the other thing a lot of farmers don't know as yet, like a lot of, um, and this is some more science in New Zealand that needs to be rectified. So in, under the ETS, it's very easy to put a pine forest into the ETS and get a credit um, because someone can say that's one hectare, that's a five-year-old pine. I'll look at my lookup tables, I'll cross five years, pinus radiata, and there's my number. When it's um, it's a bit of kanuka, um, there's some pittosporums coming away, um, there's the odd totra in there, and 40% of the hillside's covered, but 40% is not yet. Um, that's a really hard equation um, for someone in Wellington to do. But that's not to say that it's not sequestering. It, it is. And th through the likes of um, companies like Carbon Crop and Christchurch, they can measure how much that bush is sequestering. And therefore, you know, if it's a real tree on real land with real sequestration, it should be rewarded. So now there's an emerging market um, for voluntary credits. They may not, for whatever reason, meet the government's ETS definition, but it's not to say they're not good sequester sequesterers of carbon and 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 have a value. And, and voluntary credits worldwide are predicted to grow to 50 billion by 2030, so in a pretty short time frame. So a lot of farmers who, who probably won't know much about this yet, they, the talk in New Zealand has been, I'm sitting on a liability because of my emissions. Not many realize that they're also sitting on an asset because of trees, shelter belts, scrub, some of those things. And what happens when we shine the light on soil and all of a sudden it becomes a valid carbon sink? all of a sudden farmers are what we could be heroes yeah absolutely yeah and we should and and therefore you know it's um look i understand we, we the world has got to reduce emissions no one should be exempt from that um not a country not a company not an individual but but likewise no one should if you're going to you know be levied for that you know the greatest remover of carbon well, is soil, to be fair, and the ocean, but also trees. Um, but at the moment, we're only measuring trees. So let's get on with being rewarded for it because um, you, it's got to be fair accounting. So a tax has a place, but also a financial reward has a place, and it really needs to be context-specific. Good summary, yeah. And But I would say you can't have one without the other, and, and you, you don't have one without the other in any other commercial structure anywhere in the world. If any kind of levy is going to be introduced for our methane emissions, that can't happen in isolation. You've got to reward sequestration. And, and I would advocate for soil being part of that. Is wool going to have its day? Maybe. Good question. Um, you know, 50, literally 50% 50 of wool is carbon. So if, you, if you're clipping um, 5 kg fleece off of you, Two and a half kgs of that is carbon that is has been removed from the atmosphere. So absolutely, it should be. What about as a 
as a product for you know um I, I saw a video today actually nz farming shared it and it was a really graphic image of people swimming in oil from um being used for clothing do you think you know we'll come back to wool being used more for clothing and maybe even things like insulation and carpet yeah 100 percent. we have to that was a really powerful video wasn't it um oh, that was out of australia really strong um and i love the last line of that piece which is where will not fossil fuels you know what a great strong way of summing that up and i it seems I, I spotted it yesterday it seems to be traveling far and wide on social and digital that that piece so um i've seen it being posted you know through europe already so i think it's a really encouraging piece of communication that shows how interested the world is in this subject but short answer yeah you know wool i learned the other day is only one percent of our clothing in the world 76 percent i think of all clothing is made from petrochemicals like that that commercial that ad shows um yeah i think wool will be a, a winner you know from from our understanding that wearing plastic is bad um but so too will hemp uh and cotton uh, and other flax other natural fibers and these are all possibilities for farmers to diversify the enterprise with like i know a lot of farmers you know, New Zealand is is really, um, well, for many years was grounded on wool and it was a strong income. And now all of a sudden it's costing farmers to, you know, share their animals. Do you think there's an opportunity in the market for strong wool, Jeff? Yeah, I do. Uh, even though we're a fine wool farm, I, I think I'm, I'm as angry or angrier than a lot of strong wool farmers about the complete stuff up that New Zealand's made with um, our strong wool marketing over the last 30 years. Um, but yes, you know, as interest builds in natural fiber, and we've got to do, do we've got to do a lot better job with strong wool. I think strong wool will will again have its day. It has to, um, not just in flooring, but in all sorts of other uses. Yeah, I'm just thinking for myself, like imagine if wool wasn't a uh you know for the high income earners thing like that's what something has been you know short of you know all of us farmers would always have ourselves a good nausewear jersey or something like that but you're looking at 300 bucks these days you know is there an opportunity to bring wool in as as an everyday item yeah yeah a lot of it scale you know we've unfortunately it's a it's exponential it's exponentially bad when we stuff it up like we have you know, less volume of wool going through a carpet mill means higher prices, you know, but with greater volume, whether it be a carpet mill or your or clothing, you know, your yarn spinners, um, efficiency comes with that. And and so do um, your, you know, uh, cost efficiency as well. This is coming back to more storytelling, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Look, I was thrilled to see that ad. I reckon that will, um, and I, look, I'm embarrassed to say it was an Australian piece. It should have been a New Zealand piece of ad. Um, that that will travel the world. And I think there'll be more examples like that. You know, that we should do something that's similar, but with, with carpet, you know, with strong wool. You know, yeah. another terrible fact, just here in New Zealand alone, we put something like two rugby fields. I can't remember the set of, of synthetic carpet in um ground tombs we have to seal them in clay because um these things 
synthetics don't break down ever, you know, and then they leach all sorts of nasty crap into the water. So we've got to seal them in clay. So we're spending massive amounts of money trying to hide our synthetic carpets, you know, so, and also just while on the t synthetic carpets, typically most of them are covered in a chemical called PFAS. So if you've seen that movie, Dark Waters, where Mark Ruffalo, kind of the, you know, um, David and Goliath story, young lawyer takes on DuPont uh, and wins. Um, that's about PFAS and PFAS is on a lot of those chemicals. We say in New Zealand, oh, don't worry, that hasn't reached us. We're fine down here. Well, it was picked up in our dolphins last year. So it's definitely something to be aware of. And here's our babies rolling around on the stuff. That's I know, mate. Yeah. We, we overlook it, don't we? We just, yeah. Wow. There's there's so many opportunities out here. It's just, it comes back to this awareness, doesn't it? And if we don't tell the story, who's going to? Yeah. Well, in Strong World, we basically gave that right to the companies that bought our carpet mills which were american companies in most cases um who who are largely running large mills full of you know nylons and, and synthetics um and so they they have no incentive to tell our story so they're not going to do it for us so we've got we've got to create the consumer demand and i and i think um you know that piece that we're talking about that commercial that that's gone on from the walmart company is a, is a great example of that we need something equivalent for carpets, an infant baby rolling around on a whole lot of bloody shredded Coke bottles um, would be a pretty captivating image, wouldn't it? Yeah, and clothing, what we yeah. wrap our children in, what we sleep in. And you're showing the farmers of New Zealand how farmers can do that. They can create markets. They can tell a story. I don't imagine your, your walls all going to one company, is it, Jeff? Are you sort of... Yeah, we send to um, several different fashion brands. Uh, Sheep Inc. I've mentioned, uh, and a really cool fashion brand in New York called Another Tomorrow. This is through New Zealand Merino. Um, and also um, Maggie Marilyn here in New Zealand, a fa fantastic fashion brand. All those fashion brands I've mentioned uh, have a sustainability story attached to them. And more and more fashion brands are going that way. I've mentioned uh, Louis Vuitton. Uh, Burberry, another big luxury brand, they've announced plans to be carbon zero. You know, so if we're creating wool from carbon zero farms, that's surely going to give us an in there and, and a premium there. And like, look, back, back to storytelling. Look, I'm not saying that we all need to kind of get out there and start shooting commercials like that one we've just seen, but but there are 60,000 farmers in New Zealand. Let's say we, just through mucking around on social media, we can build 2,000 followers overseas over time. You know, that, that takes time. I actually think the farmers I speak to, I actually think are great storytellers. Um, and although, you know, I'm very familiar with the world of marketing, some other farmers aren't. I think the one thing I learned after 30 years in marketing is that it's just common sense and good ideas. You know, th there's no science to it. You know, I went to varsity, kind of got an agricultural degree and did a few marketing papers. But at the end of the day, marketing is just about common sense, like we're talking now. And telling a good yarn and pretty much every farmer I've spoken to is is pretty good at those things so if we speak to 2,000 people offshore each and the 60,000 farms in New Zealand that's 120 million people worldwide hearing about our food and fiber and our our love for what we do and then if we do that in a great way and the All Blacks repost it or Taika Waititi does or Flight of the Concords or Lord New Zealanders I've, I figured this out a little while ago through a friend at Facebook New Zealand speaks to a billion people 
uh, around New Zealanders, if you include people like, you know, the All Blacks and those big rating social networks from New Zealand, we speak to a billion people in the world. So of the world's 8 billion people, we're speaking to, what's the math on that? Kind of like 20% of them. Um, what amazing opportunity we have to, to tell our stories to the world. I want to hear for you, Jeff, what's it been like on, on a personal level, seeing these developments of your farm and its associated markets? Yeah, look, it's hugely rewarding. You know, back back to a business I was involved in a long time ago, uh, 42 Below Vodka. The, I think the most rewarding moment for me was one night in London. I'd been on the street selling vodka all day, working my ass off trying to get it into bars. And I was walking past a really cool bar, 11 o'clock at night, and I thought, bugger it, I'm going to shout myself a drink. This bar looked really cool. And I walked down the steps into this pumping little bar somewhere in London, and there on the back bar was a bottle of 42 Below. Somewhere it got there, somehow it got there already. You know, so it shows you that, you know, New Zealand brands can reach all sorts of interesting places in the world. And, and you know, when I see our wool um, turning up in what I consider to be one of the most exciting startup fashion, fashion brands in the US at the moment, that, yeah, it's, it's really cool that, to see that connection and and they're doing that and proudly telling their customers where this wool's from they're bringing 20 of their customers out here this this march they show pictures of our farm and their promotion um because they want to connect their customers to to the wool you know so that's um yeah it's it's that you know that that does financially work for us it's certainly a lot a lot better than throwing throwing it into the auction it's also personally rewarding for the family it seems like we've gotten to a place in history where there is a consumer demand, there are consumer concerns, and it seems like we're heading more towards the space of um, justifying our products aren't bad. But where you're going and the, the picture you're painting is we can go beyond that with full transparency, full you know, open door policy, and rather than it being some kind of tick boxing, uh, box ticking exercise of, you know, regulatory top down, you cannot do this in order to justify our products are not bad to the world, you know, as in they're not going to hurt people. We're going beyond that. And we're telling the story of producing products in our agricultural sector that go far beyond that in terms of health, in terms of economic viability, where all of a sudden there's no need for top-down, you cannot do this, regulatory, you cannot do that. It's one where, you know, society, and, and even I'll go as far as to say, possibly painting the picture of even government just simply having to just do nothing but get underneath the farmers and say, go do your thing. You're saving our country. Yeah, which if you look at during COVID, you know, our income from primary produce rose to you know from 50 percent of our country's income to 70 percent so uh, that includes logs and and wine and kiwi fruit as well but you know that you know meat and wool obviously and and dairy a huge huge part of that but yeah i think you're right john i look you know a lot a lot of farmers um are hearing um the stick for change but i think we need to change the conversation to the carrot for change because there's a lot of incentive to some of these relatively minor changes in practices really uh, and and what they can do to the premiums premiums that we deserve 
Um, and so I think, you know, salmon farming, and, and we saw a bit of this after country calendar, is, is they're feeling overwhelmed with change, frustrated with compliance. Um, and so they're, they're kind of saying enough, you know, I don't want to hear anymore. I don't want, certainly don't want to hear from you guys promoting change. Um, but our view is that, look, change occurs in every sector. Uh, it's it's occurring more rapidly in most sectors, actually. If you look at shipping or aviation or fashion this or technology particularly, there's probably more change goes on in those sectors in a week than is going on in farming in a year. So I think we need to be comfortable with change. And because of it, if we look for opportunities within those changes, we, we, we should earn more because of it. Jeff, I can't, I can't step over carrot versus stick more carrot less stick the stick yeah. doesn't work for kiwi farmers no nah, no nah. we're all independent business people you know being told what to do is sometimes um you know by someone whom we don't think understands our world is 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 a um is a hard pill to swallow but well, not look let's be straight here jeff not you know maybe doesn't understand our world in most cases literally has no idea no, they don't. But what I, but I, on the counter that, what I would say is that a lot of us in farming need to understand some of these consumer behaviours that are emerging, consumer demands and consumer opportunities that are, that are evolving in the world quite rapidly. And the op opportunities, the carrots, may well become, come from those. And I think that's what we've got to chase down um, because, you know, they, therein lies the opportunity for, for better returns. And, and we are seeing, seeing that certainly in wool um, and fine wool, and I believe we'll see it in meat next. Um, and I think, you know, particularly with regenerative systems, you know, that regenerative word, if you look in so many food stores, um, retail stores, consumer conversations, regenerative is, is huge now, not just in agriculture, but in so many sectors, you know, so we've got a bloody good head start in that so we should be using that what would you say to anyone just starting out their journey jeff they've just you know pricked their ears up to what's this regenerative thing what's all this what's all this fuss about what would you say to those people just try something just try your own expression of it, it doesn't have to be big in farming we're pretty squeezed financially you don't have to go to the bank manager necessarily to try some of these things, put in a couple of hectares of multi-species pasture this, this spring, have a look at what it does, you know, on your farm, be different to the farm down the road, but give it a go and use your own intuition. Tell your mates about it, tell <laughs> the good and the bad. You'll, every farm has unique little stories hidden within it. You know, it might come from history of your farm, some family connections to the farm, some soil types, some geographic features on your farm, some indigenous connections on your farm. There's some really cool stories. Try and get those out there. You'll be surprised. A few of them might get picked up, end up on the other side of the world, and that, that's going to help all of us. Jeff Ross, thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, for your courage, for your authenticity. Cheers, Jono. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.